0: It's not about the kids. It's about creating such havoc in public schools that they're able to say, why are we paying tax money to this institution that isn't doing its job? The
1: cries to pull books from school libraries and curricula are for who exactly? From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone.
2: Meet the parents. Parents have lost their voice to represent themselves and their children.
3: So we're bringing and, our own chairs to the table,
2: yeah. right? And we're going to claim those seats. The pandemic has been brutal on disruptions to child care. And so politicians find electoral gold in the parents' rights costs. Plus,
1: the student who took his book banning school board all the way to the Supreme
3: Court. It's almost meant to be. I was born to be the plaintiff in this case. Quote today at progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. This summer, Utah's largest school district removed over 50 books from school libraries. Pan America reports that over 20 of the freshly illicit titles feature
2: LGBT characters or themes. The titles that were reviewed were found by this committee to contain sensitive material, and they do not have literary merit.
1: The allegedly meritless books include Jodi Picot's number one New York Times bestseller, 19 Minutes, about a school shooting, a Judy Bloom title, and a memoir called Genderqueer. The removal of the books is temporary until the school board formalizes its policy for book removals It was made possible by a bill that passed earlier this year in Utah, part of a new wave of legislation limiting school curricula.
2: In Virginia schools, they are now required to alert parents if any books assigned for the curriculum have sexually explicit content. They're required to have law enforcement liaisons for those schools.
4: In Florida, the parental rights and education law,
5: the one that critics called Don't Say Gay, bans instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity in classrooms. Another education law is the Stop Woke Act. This one restricts how race-related topics are taught in school and also workplace training.
6: In October, Republican state legislator Matt Krause requested every school district in the state scour their libraries for a list of 850 books. The American Library
1: Association reports that last year saw more than 1,500 book removals and challenges, a new record. And there's a reason the ALA didn't use the word ban. The association prefers the term book challenge to more accurately reference these cases, which vary in scope. For example... A book removed from a class's required reading might still be available in the school's library. Or a book allowed in one district might be absent from a neighboring one, or even from that neighborhood's public library. In fact, over 40% of these challenges occurred in public libraries in 2020. Earlier this year, I spoke to Kelly Jensen, a Chicago-based editor at Book Riot, who writes a weekly update on book censorship news in the U.S. She says this nascent battle over books in schools straddles the nation.
0: The reality is it's happening everywhere. It's happening in the Chicago suburbs. It's happening in New York State. Outside of Seattle Tacoma in one of the suburbs, a middle school librarian was trying to add more LGBTQ positive books into the collection, doing what a librarian does researching these titles, making sure they have great reviews and that they would be appropriate for their community. The principal bypassed all of their policies and procedures, just quietly pulling these titles from shelves. People in that area were shocked it was happening in their backyard let me unpack a couple of things here. First, what was going on in the principal's
1: mind? Was it simply to avoid a really noisy school
0: board meeting in the future? There's been a number of groups in that suburban area that are working toward challenging materials, toward oversight in curriculum. And so, my read was that the principal was trying to make sure that nothing like that would happen. And parents who wouldn't object to the books, who might actually welcome the books, they
1: don't know that that's going on.
0: And it's not just parents who don't know, it's the students don't know, the mm-hmm. teachers don't know. It takes somebody who is willing to blow the whistle like this particular librarian was to get this quiet or soft censorship even noticed. Moms for Liberty You've Mm -hmm. drawn attention
1: to this nonprofit group. You say it has 165 chapters in 33 states. Mm -hmm. You also say they operate county by county rather than city or state, meaning that the action can be very quick and targeted.
0: Moms for Liberty created a campaign that they are calling Moms for Libraries. They have collaborated with a publisher called Brave Books, and Brave Books publishes titles that are conservative, that are, quote unquote, liberty focused, and that have a religious theme. They're doing two things. They're Mm -hmm. pulling books out of the library, which is giving them negative press. But if they create a campaign called Moms for Libraries and donate books back to libraries, that certainly gives them a different Mm -hmm. look in the public eye. But when you start to dig in a little bit, you realize that this particular publisher they're working with is... Propaganda. So they're pushing their agenda in two directions. Of course, the word agenda gets tossed
1: around a lot. The Mm -hmm. people who would challenge books say that it's the gay agenda or the trans agenda or the liberal agenda or the critical race theory agenda that is going to twist the tender minds of our youths. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about what books are most prone To censorship.
0: One of the big ones is Gender Queer by Maya Kobabi. And it's a book about a genderqueer person coming to understand their gender identity. One of the tactics being used by these groups and individuals is looking into state policies around topics like obscenity and pornography. And using that state law or statute as a proof of why these books shouldn't be in schools or libraries.
1: So these books, do they have to meet the standard of having no redeeming social importance or is it just a threat? Do they actually
0: prevail on legal grounds? In some states, they're trying to create the legislation that would make them be Removed, where in other places, who is on the board of the school or library has the power to make that decision rather than any actual prevailing legislation.
1: Obviously, books that address gender identity have come under the withering light of Moms for Liberty. Books like All Boys Aren't Blue, Gender Queer, and the ever popular Heather Has Two Mommies. Also books written by Black authors and featuring Black characters from The Bluest Eye, a standalone story by Toni Morrison, To Kill a Mockingbird
0: Mm -hmm. by the most emphatically not Black, Harper Lee. I also want to add to this list Dear Martin by Nick Stone that's currently coming under fire. And I bring that one up in context of To Kill a Mockingbird because there was Mm -hmm. just a challenge I want to say Missouri, where students were reading Dear Martin in class, there was a complaint, and the book was replaced with To Kill a Mockingbird, which Mm. is heartbreaking because Dear Martin is a contemporary story of a black boy and his Mm -hmm. experiences with racism, whereas To Kill a Mockingbird is by a white author about racism, but in a capacity that has merit
1: in a 1950s capacity, perhaps? There you go. Where there were many fewer people getting to speak about their own experience directly
0: and being paid attention to? Is that yeah. what you mean? Books like To Kill a Mockingbird are being reevaluated for whether they are the best book to address racism in the classroom. They're still available. They're still widely read. They're still recommended. But the move has been to include more books by Black authors who can share from a perspective that To Kill a Mockingbird simply can't. Schools updating their curriculum have also been used as a conservative talking point of, well, they're removing books from the classroom, too. This is a willful misrepresentation of what's Mm -hmm. actually happening, and it gets that base riled up. Could you take me through the process
1: of challenging a book? And how long does it take for a book to be pulled from the shelf or not?
0: So it's going to vary. Typically what happens is a parent or community person will file a complaint. Most libraries have a form. What book are you complaining about? Why are you complaining about it? And did you read the material in full? Typically, the process is there's a committee that will meet and discuss the book. They will all read it they will read the professional reviews, and then they'll determine whether or not it's appropriate for their community. Now, though, we're seeing more state governments stepping in, demanding schools and libraries look for these particular books in their collection. So in Texas, it's a list of 850 books seemingly slapped together from some quick research. So there's this tension now that whatever the school's policy is might not be enough to protect their expertise in doing their jobs. Instead, it's being handed over to the
1: state. My understanding is in some places the policies public library systems use are vague enough to give room for an interpretation. So they
0: can just pull things without Mm. a formal complaint because there wasn't one outlined. The Wake County Public Library System in North Carolina, pulled genderqueer from their shelves. I looked and looked for their collection development policy. It was very vague. It didn't have a chain of command, a set of steps that happen when there's been a book complaint. There had been a series of emails about the book, and ultimately their collection development manager decided to just pull it. This is Wake County. This is the largest library system in North Carolina. So library workers within that system complained. The library board wondered what happened. At the end of the day, not only was the book put back on shelves, but the collection development policy and procedures for a book challenge were updated and made much more accessible. How often do you think this happens where no one really knows? It requires somebody speaking out. I'd read about it in one of the North Carolina newspapers, Gender Queer Being Pulled. I put in a FOIA asking for emails and found my answer right in there. It was like an external group. Some of the motivation could be that the Wake County public school system had received a number of complaints from parents. And A couple of those parents filed police reports about this book. Well, that ties back into obscenity and pornography laws. You can see the line between the two thoughts. Maybe Wake County Public Libraries was trying to ward off a potential challenge in pulling the book.
1: Is the concern that uh, public libraries will be tailored to middle schoolers?
0: Some of these challenges in public libraries particular don't necessarily want the books pulled completely, but want them very difficult for young people to access. In Jonesboro, Craighead County, Arkansas, what they have been doing is moving these books from the children's collection to a shelf that is now next to the children's librarian desk, so a... 10-year-old who wants to read this book, let's say that the book is It's Perfectly Normal. That's another one that's gotten challenges this year. It's a puberty book with illustrations appropriate for eight-year-olds and up. Say a 10-year-old wants to look at that book, they now have to walk up to the librarian desk to browse these shelves. Well, that kid has now made it clear that they're looking at materials that people in the community think aren't appropriate. It's such a huge deterrent.
1: These school board meetings, are the people objecting to the books mostly white? I mean, given the way critical race theory is often tied up in education censorship, what's the role of race in these disputes?
0: oh, it's absolutely primarily white out here. I believe it was Downers Grove High School. This particular meeting also brought in the Proud Boys who are, you know, Mm. white supremacists. And so there's this pride that I am seeing in many of these school board meetings. Uh, It's white pride. And it's very clear this isn't about the kids Thank
1: you very much.
0: Yeah, thank you. Kelly Jensen is an editor
1: at Book Riot. This conversation first aired in February. Coming up, it's all framed as a parent's rights issue, but it's not always about the children. This is On the Media. This is On The Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. The conservative education advocacy network Moms for Liberty launched in 2021 and claims to have amassed nearly 100,000 members to date. At the group's first ever summit last month, hundreds rallied around the goal of winning seats on school boards around the country. At a hotel in Tampa, Florida, they used Wi-Fi hotspots named We Beat School Boards and Don't Teach Gender ID. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis lent his support.
3: Now's not the time uh, to be a shrinking violet. Now's not the time. Uh, to to let them grind you down. You've got to stand up and you've got to fight.
1: But these and other self-titled parental rights advocates don't appear to be fighting to expand their children's education. A trend in the past year's school board showdowns are parents seeking to limit curricula. To remove whatever from science or history or English class that makes them uncomfortable or might make their kids uneasy. But in the debates over curricula, there remains a fundamental legal loose end. Who does decide what to teach kids? How much do parental rights figure into the mission of public education in American democracy? In February of this year, I spoke to Jennifer Berkshire and Jack Schneider. They host the education podcast, Have You Heard?, and are co-authors of a Washington Post article titled, Parents Claim They Have the Right to Shape Their Kids' School Curriculum. They don't.
4: Parents do have rights, and... They can make choices. Their rights have been very clearly defined legally. They can, for instance, withdraw their kids from the public education system and send them to a private school. But parents aren't the only ones with rights. Children themselves have a right to an education, and parents do not simply have property rights over their children. Their children are both independent actors who need to be treated with dignity and respect and who have a right to be exposed to ideas that may not align with the ideas that they're exposed to at home. And they are future citizens who we all have a stake in.
1: In your piece, you guys wrote that... Common law and case law in the U.S. have long supported the idea that education should prepare young people to think for themselves, even if that runs counter to the wishes of parents. And you quote the legal scholar Jeff Shulman, who said, This effort may well divide child from parent, not because socialist educators want to indoctrinate children, but because learning to think for oneself is what children do. Okay. Okay. What is the common law and case law? How do we see it play out?
4: The system is not designed to alienate young people from whatever values and beliefs they're exposed to at home. For the most part, that isn't really what happens. But in cases where parents, let's say, don't want young people exposed to even basic things like the ability to read and write, the compelling state interest in preparing somebody to participate as an equal member in a democratic republic trumps those parental desires to, let's say, shield a young person from the world.
1: And that's implicit in the law that requires kids to be educated up to a certain age.
4: Right. It's a part of legal interpretations there, right? It doesn't say in state constitutions Mm -hmm. that if parental desires conflict with this law, then parents lose, right? That's a part of what courts have wrestled with over the years. And sometimes they've struck compromises, like in the Supreme Court's Yoder decision, where they upheld the fact that uh, there is a compelling state interest in young people receiving an education, but also respected the Amish desire to not send their kids to school past a certain age.
1: Now, in the Post piece, again, you wrote that U.S. law has long supported the idea that education should prepare young people to think for themselves, even if that runs counter to the wishes of parents. Can you give some examples of that?
4: The teaching of evolution. Ultimately, the desires of parents from particular religious, backgrounds and traditions did not win out over right of schools to teach what's in accordance with science. A parallel example today would be teaching climate change. There are certainly parents, less likely because of their religious backgrounds than because of their political persuasions, who don't want climate change being taught as a fact. They don't want it being taught at all. Schools do not need to then stop teaching climate science merely because some parents find it to be in violation of their political ideology.
1: Jennifer, you wrote that this actually isn't the first time we've seen a push for parents' rights, that we saw this happening back in the 90s, for instance.
2: What's amazing is if you start poking around in the 90s, you'll find, you know, an unbelievable amount of media coverage of the parent rights issue, including by columnists who are still writing today. A lot of it started as the culture changed to include, you know, more recognition of gay and lesbians. And so there was Mm -hmm. a big backlash in New York City against what was known as a rainbow curriculum and the idea that kids were going to be reading books like Heather Has Two Mommies. Parents felt like they were losing control over the ideas that their kids were being exposed to. There was a deep-pocketed, well-organized push to get parents' rights language on the books in every state. And then It ran out of steam for reasons that I think are really instructive for us today. Mm -hmm. One of them I learned about reading a George Will column. He was very concerned Mm -hmm. that putting language like this in constitutions would set off an explosion of litigation And he asked, you know, do we really want to turn every parent's cultural grievance into a lawsuit? And so the movement ran up against another pet GOP cause at the time, which was tort reform, right? (laughs) Fast forward to today, you know, we've already seen this just explosion of these education gag orders across the country. It's very much a wedding of what law professor John Michaels describes as the industrial grievance complex with the school wars there was one that was rolled out in Oklahoma just this week that if a teacher teaches something that goes against a child's religious beliefs that the teacher will have to pay five thousand dollars out of his or her own money and if the teacher is found to have been the beneficiary of something like a GoFundMe or, you know, an organization stepped in, that teacher will lose their license in Oklahoma for five years. So it's this incredible yoking of this moment of grievance to really encouraging people to become their own private litigators. And, you know, these bills, these education gag orders now affect a third of the students in the country.
4: And this is not really a new strategy. If you go back to the 1960s, you can read historian Richard Hofstetter writing about what he called the paranoid style in American politics. And he was talking about the Goldwater movement, but it really applies today. His assessment of how much political leverage, I think was his phrasing, can be got out of the animosities and passions of a small minority if you present to them a kind of all-powerful boogeyman. That's why I think that Jennifer and I tend to see this as a cynical political movement, because it's politically effective, but it's not in response to any major shifts in the rights that parents have had historically versus the rights they have now, Mm -hmm. or really the basic ways that schools are operating.
1: Why do so many core debates in our country end up in school board meetings?
4: Well, one reason is that young people enrolled in the schools who are today ages five to 18, 10 or 20 years from now, they'll not only be voting, many of them will be running for offices and will be voting for them. A second reason, for this is there are roughly a hundred thousand public schools across the United States, and these are simultaneously government institutions they are institutions that belong to local communities they are manifestations of our public life together and given the decline over the past several decades in civic associations and in other forms of public life, the schools are often the only place where people are coming together and engaging in these kinds of civic activities.
1: Are there a ton of parents fighting for their kids to learn history and science, fighting for books to stay on shelves and
2: in curricula? We see polls that show that the number of parents who want their kids to be exposed to quote-unquote honest accounting of history, that they far outnumber the parents whose voices are so loud in this debate. But the problem is that the kinds of scenes we've been witnessing at these school board meetings, I have talked to people all over the country who describe the demoralizing effect of being shouted down you know, of being too fearful to speak up at a meeting. They really have an anti-democratic effect. What's troubling is that as things move on to the book banning phase, often you have students speaking out and saying, I need to be exposed to ideas like this. They're going to end up on the receiving end of this kind of anti-democratic action, which I think sends a powerful signal that you're better off just not speaking up. So, The loudest voices at that public comment section of the school board meeting, often it's the woman at the Virginia meeting who says, you know, we're coming back and we're bringing our guns.
1: So there are a ton of parents who feel it's important for their kids to learn history and science, but they aren't loud enough.
2: I think that that's really true. And I think the other thing that's going to be very interesting to watch is... The more these bans go into effect, limiting what kids can learn, the more kids' own futures are going to be limited. And at a certain point, the affluent suburban parents who we complain about so much that they do everything they can to gain advantage for their kids, well, at a certain point, It's going to, you know, make a difference in something like an AP test or a college admission. They're going to end up learning less as a result. Once parents start to process that, the real backlash to this is going to happen. We've already seen this in states where, you know, legislators have really pushed to defund public schools for ideological reasons. There's a certain point where parents who have not been involved before start to see that this is making a difference for the worse in their own kids' lives. And that's where the backlash really picks up steam. Thanks so much for having us.
1: Jennifer Berkshire and Jack Schneider are co-authors of the book A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. This conversation first aired in February. Coming up, the historic lawsuit over censorship one kid was born to bring. This is On The Media. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Now we turn to the rights of students and the authority of school boards. This year marks the 40th anniversary of Island Trees School District versus PICO, the first and only time the Supreme Court considered the question of book removal in school libraries. In February, our correspondent Micah Lowinger tracked down the main plaintiff from this nearly forgotten case.
3: You know, we're being taught in schools that book banning only occurs in totalitarian countries. And you wake up one day and you're not allowed to read a book in your own school because it was removed from all the shelves.
5: This is Stephen Pico, who would end up finding his way to the Supreme Court some years later. But in 1976, he was still a 17 year old student at Island Trees High School on Long Island in New York. Mm-hmm. He discovered his life's calling the day he learned that a list of books had been removed from his school district's libraries.
3: From the high school library, nine books were banned. The Naked Ape by Desmond Morris, Down These Mean Streets by Fury Thomas. They include such books as Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver. The book banner said that he was anti-American and that he hated white women. And then there's Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. He made the list because he called Jesus a man with no connections. And then there's The Fixer by Bernard Malmud. They said that that was anti-Semitic. There was also
5: Best Short Stories by Black Writers, an anthology edited by Langston Hughes that featured work by James Baldwin. Go Ask Alice by an anonymous author. Laughing Boy by
3: Oliver Lafarge. Black Boy by Richard Wright. And A Hero Ain't Nothing But a Sandwich by Alice Childress. Also from the junior high school library, one book was banned, an anthology called A Reader for Writers, edited by Jerome Archer. The Island Tree School Board targeted these
5: books after three of its members had traveled upstate for a conservative conference
3: run by a group called Parents of New York United. They went outside my community and found a list on a table at a meeting of objectionable books and then they went back to our library and they searched the school and said okay well we found 11 books on this list we're going to remove them now what does that mean it means no student ever objected to any of these books it means that no parent in the community ever objected to any of these books no one in the community had objected to any of these books would it have mattered if people were objecting to the books in principle no but in my case It came from a political movement that was going across the United States. And many people today can understand what I'm talking about. The school board, which is publicly elected, sent out a press release. The press release said, while at a conference, we learned of books found in schools throughout the country, which were anti-American, anti-Christian, anti-Semitic and just plain filthy to date. What we have found is that the books do in fact contain material which is offensive to Christians, Jews, Blacks, and Americans in general. In addition, these books contain obscenities, blasphemies, brutality, and perversion beyond description.
5: An interesting wrinkle in all this is that Stephen Pico had gotten to know the members of the school board personally because he was student council president. And when he challenged them on their decision, he started to suspect that they were
3: cherry-picking passages. I had read, uh, I'd say, a number of the books that were removed. I think the one that probably touched me the most was Go Ask Alice.
2: Hello, diary. My name's Alice.
3: Which was widely known to be a cautionary tale about a
5: 15-year-old who runs away from home and starts doing drugs.
2: No jobs anywhere, but plenty of dope. How you pay for it, something else.
3: They didn't read the book in its entirety. They said, here's an excerpt, Steve. So this is, these are the words of Alice. Quote, It might be great because I'm practically a virgin in the sense that I've never had sex except when I've been stoned. So what I did as a 17-year-old is I opened the book and I'm searching for this excerpt. He found that in context, that passage
5: had a completely different tone and meaning. Here's what followed the excerpt.
3: I'm practically a virgin in the sense that I've never had sex except when I've been stoned. And I'm sure without drugs, I'd be scared out of my mind. I just hope I can forget Everything that's happened when I finally get married to someone I love. That's a nice secure thought, isn't it? Going to bed with someone you love. Then there were the school
5: board's problems with the hero ain't nothing but a sandwich by Alice Childress.
3: Which was also made into a pretty famous movie. The book was banned for two reasons. First, because the word ain't appears in the title. And the second reason was a passage from the book spoken by Nigeria Green. Nigeria Green was a black teacher in a Harlem school in the book. And he
2: said, We all know that uh, George Washington was a slaveholder, but he was also
6: First President of the United States. Also the father of his country. Is that right?
0: Oh, George was the father. He sure got around, didn't he?
3: (laughs) The school board said the passage was anti-American because it spoke disparagingly of one of the founding fathers. I lived in an all-white school district, and that's why James Baldwin was targeted and Alice Childress and Langston Hughes, and Richard Wright. They were targeted because they were minority ideas in a suburban white community. Shortly after the book removal, Pico got in touch with the American Civil Liberties Union. I told them that I knew of the book banning, uh, that I was upset by it, and that I wanted to challenge the constitutionality of it. I I
5: have to say, it's kind of mind-boggling that you, as a high school student, Your first reaction would be, I would
3: like to challenge the constitutionality. I think when people get involved in a personal way, in an intense way with any issue, it's almost meant to be. I was born to be the plaintiff in this case. He was
6: very thoughtful, very sophisticated for a high school student.
5: This is Arthur Eisenberg, one of the lawyers responsible for crafting the legal arguments that would end up before the Supreme Court.
6: When we heard about the incident collectively at the New York Civil Liberties Union, our impulse was that this is a case of censorship in violation of the First Amendment.
5: The ACLU had Stephen Pico encourage four other students to join him as plaintiffs, including at least one who was young enough that he or she would still be in the school system should the case drag on for a long time, which it did five years. He chose Russell Rieger, age 17, Jacqueline Gold, 16, Glenier, 16, and Paul Suchinsky, 14. Arthur Eisenberg began representing the five students after the district court ruled in favor of the school board.
6: The school board comes into court and says, yes, we censored these books because they are inconsistent with our political philosophy, because they are anti-American, anti-Christian, anti-Semitic and just plain filthy. But the school board's argument was, we are the democratically elected body to make judgments about curriculum and the contents of the library. That was at the heart of their argument. And that was accepted by the district court. And so when we had to take an appeal, we had to explain why that theory was wrong and why the First Amendment was violated.
5: Eisenberg used a couple different legal theories, but the most prominent one, the one that would feature most in the Supreme Court case, was this.
6: We argued that school officials and school boards have some discretion regarding the curriculum, and regarding what is taught in the schools, but they cannot exercise that authority in a way to impose a narrow orthodoxy of views and values. And they cannot exercise that authority consistent with the First Amendment in an effort to suppress ideas that they don't like.
5: Ultimately, the Second Court of Appeals bought the argument.
3: So we won, and the books were to be returned. So it was the school board that appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene. The issue here is not the books. What's at issue here is local control.
5: This is Frank Martin, who was one of the leaders of the Island Tree School District at the time, speaking with CBS after they lost in the Court of Appeals.
3: Does the courts decide what books go into a school library, or do the local taxpayers and locally elected a school board, their representatives, select what goes into the schools?
5: While they were waiting for the Supreme Court case to begin, Pico upped his media game. Since he'd first sued the school board, he'd been a guest on the Phil Donahue show, he'd spoken at press conferences with Kurt Vonnegut, Alice Childress, and some of the other authors whose books had been removed from the library. Much of this while he was a student at Haverford College.
3: I worked my butt off throughout my entire college years to make sure it was kept alive in the media, that people knew the stakes.
5: From the very beginning, it's clear that your intention was to challenge the constitutionality of removing books from school libraries. But then many years later, when the Supreme Court chose to hear the case, there was a chance that the court might make it constitutional and would sort of supercharge this kind of censorship. Was there a moment when you were Nervous about what you'd gotten yourself into?
3: You bet. You're exactly correct. You're very astute. I thought we would win the case, but then in 1981, Potter Stewart left the court.
6: Justice Stewart resigned after nearly a quarter of a century on the court. I'm pleased to announce that I will send to the Senate the nomination of Judge Sandra Day O'Connor of Arizona Court of Appeals for confirmation as an associate justice of the United States Supreme Court.
3: And it was hailed as this great opportunity for women in America. And I looked at it differently because yes, there was a female justice, but she was gonna vote against me. And I realized that this is gonna be a very close decision. The day that we were at the Supreme Court, I was interviewed on all the daily news, the morning shows, and the CBS correspondent said to me, do you really think you're gonna win here? And I was like, we might lose 5-4, we might win 5-4, but I'm sure it's gonna be a 5-4 decision. And he said, you're so naive. I've been the law correspondent at CBS News for 30 years, and you're going to lose 7-2. You're only going to have Brennan and Marshall on your side.
1: We'll hear arguments next in Board of Education uh, against...
5: Pico and others. Uh... On March 2nd, 1982, the court heard oral arguments from both sides, and by this time, the school board had dropped the whole anti-American, anti-religious argument, and instead were insisting that the books had been removed because of their so-called My vulgarity.
6: My position is initially that an examination of, of the record, and if the justices choose, the books themselves will indicate that there is absolutely no political motivation. However...
5: An argument which was rejected by Pico's litigator. They may say that, and they may want the court to believe
3: that's what went on here, but they did in fact make some very explicit political judgments.
5: Then, after four months of deliberation...
3: The Supreme Court today sharply curbed the authority of local school boards to ban books from school libraries. The landmark decision split the court on a 5-4 to vote, and Chief Justice Warren Burger, speaking for the minority, called the ruling a startling erosion of the power of local school boards.
5: Stephen Pico and the president of the Island Tree School District were interviewed after the verdict was read. It's a fantastic
3: decision. It's a, Anyone that respects the First Amendment and the free flow of ideas is, is overjoyed today. This is definitely uh, a defeat today. It's a sad day in this country for local control. But this initial coverage didn't
5: capture the complexity of the decision. This wasn't like Roe v. Wade, where you had one big opinion that a majority of justices signed onto that ultimately dramatically changed the law. In the Pico case, there were several different opinions, none of which received a clear majority. Looking back, Arthur Eisenberg is most focused on two of the seven opinions— One in favor of the school board, written by Justice Rehnquist, joined by two other justices, and one written by Justice Brennan, who wrote the leading opinion in favor of Pico, joined by three.
6: Justice Brennan essentially said that school board members cannot exercise their authority to suppress ideas that they do not like. In effect, Justice Brennan argued that students have a First
5: Amendment right to receive information, an idea that had never been extended to school
6: libraries. He said, in essence, if a school board consisting of Democrats were to decide to ban all books about Republicans and all books by Republicans, that would be impermissible. Yeah, seems about right. And Rehnquist turned around and said... If it's a principle which holds that school board members should not suppress ideas they don't like, why is that principle limited to the removal of books? Why wouldn't it even apply to the purchase of books, to the maintenance of the collection?
5: So here, Rehnquist is saying that Brennan's position could introduce problems for school boards. Like, what about all the books that a school library never had in the first place?
6: Are you really saying that the school censored those ideas as well? And I don't think Brennan or we had a clear enough answer to that. Rehnquist's problem with Brennan's argument was it's true, Rehnquist concedes, that if they did it because they don't like uh, Republicans— that would be impermissible, but it's possible they decided not on the basis of ideology and not on the basis of politics, but they made their decision based upon the vulgarities in the books, and that's why I'm dissenting from Brennan's opinion.
5: The vulgarity versus political question was another big point of disagreement. Justice White, who made the deciding vote, the fifth vote in favor of Stephen Pico and the ACLU, didn't sign on to Justice Brennan's opinion because he didn't think the motivation of the school board had been settled.
6: You know, I often say that we won the case by a vote of 4-1-4. We had four votes and the school board had four votes and Justice White couldn't make up his mind, so he sent the case back for trial. They said that a trial should be held
3: to determine the motivation behind the book banning. Stephen Pico. And because the school board did not want to go to trial they decided to return all the books to the shelves because their motivation in banning the books was clear. I wanted to see these books returned to the shelves and I wanted a precedent set around America so that this wouldn't be happening again. And But it is happening again. Well, it is happening again because progress is slow. And you know that. You, you know that in, in the fight for constitutional rights, it takes decades to get things done. The Pico case remains the one and only time the Supreme Court
5: considered the question of book censorship in school libraries, which is why I'm kind of surprised to not hear it discussed in the press more often. One reason might be that it didn't set a clear precedent. And another is that Stephen Pico refused to participate in a sort of Hollywood mythology that tends to help activists stick in our historical
3: memory. I've turned down Columbia Pictures. I've turned down the New York Times Magazine section. I've turned down the opportunity to to write a book. Why? Because I didn't want to be seen as profiting from something that I really cared about. If they wanted to do a movie that wasn't about my personal life, if they wanted to do a serious movie about book censorship, then I probably would have collaborated with them. But they really were looking for a private story. And to me, there is no private story here.
5: Pico has mostly retreated from the extremely public life of a Supreme Court litigant, Nowadays he's a painter and sculptor and he writes for his site artloverstravel.com. As for Arthur Eisenberg, he's never stopped thinking about this case.
6: People have asked me what my favorite case was in my 4 decades at the Civil Liberties Union and this is the case because of the evolving nature of my thinking about it. Are you regretful at all? I I'm 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 look. We didn't create the law that we would have liked. His first eureka
5: moment, a new way of thinking about the Pico case, hit him about eight years later.
6: When I was working on a case involving the funding of family planning services where the government said, we're the funding authority, we can tell doctors that they can't talk to their patients about abortion, it occurred to me that maybe this was one of those relationships that should be protected.
5: Then there was this episode in the late 90s when New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani lost a court case with the Brooklyn Museum when he threatened to evict the museum if it ran an exhibition that featured a controversial depiction of the Virgin Mary.
6: What they did is disgusting. It's outrageous. You could call it anti Christianity, but anti Catholicism in particular because the mayor is saying, in effect, if there's a book
0: in a library that we fund, I can take it out if it is offensive. That is profoundly dangerous.
6: Ding!
5: That's that's when the light bulb over your head lit up.
6: Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it was too late. Exactly, it was a little <laughs> late for the uh, for the Island Trees case. But <laughs> if you look back, when state funded universities were first created in this country, scholars feared that legislators would use the power of the purse to dictate the content of curricula, and this concern. Gave rise to principles of academic freedom, which insulated lectures and writings of academics from influence by the funding sources, uh, governmental as well as private. The lesson is this just as academic judgments should be left to the academics, curatorial judgments should be left to the curators, and decisions about the content of library collections should be left to the librarians. And I mentioned this theory because one of the arguments that the school district made was, look, we bought these books, we paid for them, we can make the judgment that these books are impermissible because we paid for
5: them. He calls his first idea the academic freedom theory. Here's another legal argument that he thinks might have been persuasive in the Island Trees case.
6: Public education is not just about reading and writing and arithmetic. That an element of a sound basic education involves being educated in democracy. And ideological diversity and pluralism are foundational democratic values. And democracy rests on the power of reason through public discussion. And the remedy for bad ideas is not coerced silence, it is not censorship, but more speech to correct those errors.
5: Because one of the things that Brennan did point out in his opinion is that the Supreme Court has invalidated education laws passed by state
6: legislatures. In one case, Nebraska prohibited the teaching of foreign languages in schools. And in the other case, in Arkansas, there was an effort by the legislature to prohibit teaching about Darwin in schools. And the Supreme Court invalidated both of them. Either of these arguments,
5: the academic freedom theory or the democratic education theory, might have been effective in the Pico case. Eisenberg thinks they may have helped set a precedent that would have stopped the kind of book removals we're seeing today. If you could go back in a time machine and apply one of these different legal theories to that case, would you?
6: Yes. Yes. Yes, I would.
5: A case that coulda, woulda, shoulda been bigger, more definitive, more precedent-setting. Forty years later, a similar moral panic has taken hold in our discourse and in our schools. Or maybe it just never went away. It's hard not to look at the Pico case and wonder if a different ruling informed by what we know today might have been able to save our schools and our democracy a whole bunch of trouble. For On the Media, I'm Michael Loinger.
1: That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Eloise Blondio, Molly Schwartz, Rebecca Clark-Calendar, Candace Wong, and Suzanne Gaber. Our technical directors, Jennifer Munson... Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone.